Hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flight The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation I stopped an old man along the way Hoping to find some old forgotten words Say, hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you. Gonna take the life to take me away from you. There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. I bless the rains down in Africa. Gonna take some time. Longing for some solitary company I know that I must do what's right Sure as Kilimanjaro rises Like Olympus above the Serengeti I seek to cure what's deep inside Frightened of this thing that I've become
Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. You might want to pull up a chair. It's going to be a long one. Also, I hope I got things in order <laughs> putting together a file of this many moving parts. And I'm certainly not complaining, but it has a lot of moving parts to it. So I, I did my best to try to get into some semblance of timeline here. Because I started out talking about general timeline issues as far as... Um, where do I think these people started out? Well, I think they started out in Egypt. And I think they traveled through Egypt into India, India to Germany. This is just a simple short answer. And Germany to here to the United States of America. That's what I think the path that they took. Do I have any real firm answers for you today? No, I do not. <laughs> I only have some ideas, some thoughts, and who they could possibly be that traveled through this area, right? There's a lot of sneaky things going on here that I'm very suspicious of. I think it possibly was a huge trick, the biggest trick of all. And who was tricked? Well, probably the people in Africa. So grab your safari hats, kids. We're heading off to Africa for this show because it needs to take a really good look at Africa. What went on in Africa? Why all the buzz about Africa? Has anybody looked at a map? Egypt is in Africa. So how are these people claiming that the mummies and all those little lies they came up with in Egypt, how are they saying that those people were all white? Did they look around? They're in a black country. All the Egypt Egyptologists that did all this work, they're all white. Are we seeing some whitewashing of the black population going on here? Well, these people are pretty tricky, aren't they? They're full-time liars, full-time psychopaths. Anything could be the case here, okay? So after I talk about the timeline, I'll be talking about the pyramid system that of the caste. It is in a distinct pyramid of who sits where. Where do we fit into all of this? Newsflash. We're all lower caste people. <laughs> Everybody that wants to be one of them is going to be in for a rough ride because I don't think what happened to the people before us was anything all too pleasant. Several things I've learned from all of this. I also learned, and I cover it in the show, that supposedly Hitler evaluated the U.S. system to design it for the Nazis. But the U.S. system was a little bit too harsh for the Nazi system. And also, I covered the Dravidians, key people out of India, the Dravidians. They look suspiciously black. So the Dravidians. Also, I put in a final chapter about locusts. You'll think, what a weird thing to put in locusts in the middle of a thing about um, caste system. Well, locusts may be one way they control the caste systems, right? Because I discovered locusts are really a pack of grasshoppers, okay, that go wild and just get rid of crops and all kinds of other things. So because I didn't have any place else to put it, I put it in this show. <laughs> because locusts has to do with biological warfare. And, you know, in a way it does, it does tie into castes because 
what do locusts do? Well, they ruin the lives of poor people. So anyway, so I hope you enjoy the show. There's a lot of moving parts here. I hope I got it in decent enough order that you can follow along. It's a long, kind of complicated story. What I did come out with are several things, and I'll have more of my concluding thoughts at the end here. But I have said for a long time that psychopaths have no sense of loyalty, okay? So if I were you, and you happen to be thinking that tricking the rest of us on the behalf of them is a good plan, I would seriously reconsider your actions at this point in this game we call life, okay? And here's why I'm saying this, because I think you will find through this show the people that got a very, very rough ride in this history of what we call the last couple hundred years, the people that got the most in terms of the torture, and I don't like to do comparative things between who got tortured worse than the other person because, you know, everybody pretty much at this stage is a wounded warrior <laughs> that's lived in this country or in this world at this point in time, right? But I think if you listen carefully through this show, you will find the oppression of the people of the darker skin category got taken to the cleaners and are still being taken to the cleaners, meaning the oppression against them is real. And I think that they got so oppressed because they had to keep us separate, right? So they put them into the slave category. Whether they came over on those ships or not is still questionable, but we do know for a fact that Africans came into this country. And I believe that they have continued to get a very bad deal because it's likely that their history was stolen by the white people at this juncture of time in Egypt. And I don't want to jump too far ahead of my skis here, but I would caution you to pay attention to why all this rough treatment toward black people? Why? Why'd that happen? Was it because it's to cover some big lie. And if they separate the black people out and put them in as slaves early on, it separated us, locked all the black people up in jail all this time, did all this torturous things that we would never get together and align and compare notes. So we'd find out that, hey, maybe the original rulers were black. Who knows, right? Were they whitewashed by the white people? But all I'm trying to say here is psychopaths have no sense of loyalty. So whatever happened in Egypt at that point in time, when this whole thing kind of blew out, I would say the black people got a pretty sharp stick poked at them for a lot of reasons that you'll find out today under this caste system. And I think there's a lot of things here going on too, because with a caste system, it defines who people are. I think in our own minds, this thing is still going on today because we see others as others, right? We no longer see them as the same of us. Where did we get that from? Well, by being separated, right? By being part of a caste system. People on this level don't typically associate with people on other levels, right? So just think about it for yourself. It appears to me that the caste system is still in full force today. And it also appears to me that something very fishy happened in Africa, in Egypt in specific, 
that has to do with our fellow black citizens. They are not separate from us. They are us. And we need to start looking at each other as all of one person. So yeah, don't let them drive us apart. That's what their whole goal has been all this time. So pull up a chair, try to keep your mind open. And let me tell you this, if you think tricking us on behalf of them is a good plan, good luck with that one, okay? Enjoy the show. be doing is putting together a timeline of sorts. What I typically do when I start working on a project is pull together a timeline and key details that I want to take a look at. These people write a lot of stuff. The whole idea is for them to give us information but to create a lot of chaos during that information part. So I think that something clearly happened in Africa. What it is, I don't really know, but there has to be something. And I'll conclude the show with my thoughts. So let me just go over some of these random thoughts and timelines that I have here to take a look at. Because the first thing I do is pull together a timeline for myself. And what I'll do is it's in rough form. And remember, I copy and paste things from different locations into one file so I can take a look at it. So... I didn't really actually write all these sentences. <clears throat> I just put them together in the best date order that I possibly could. And what I'll be doing is going through them. <clears throat> and I will also post a copy of this at the website in the show notes section. So you can take a look at it for yourself. Clearly, I'm not going to go back thousands of years because I don't believe that this thing went back thousands of years. So let's start off with how they first start identifying races. And that would have been in 1795. A guy named Johann Blumenbach. He specified races into five areas. Caucasian, the white race. Mongolian, the yellow race. Malian, the brown race. Ethiopian, the black race. And American, the red race. He considered the Caucasians to be the first race on earth, consistent with the common conception of the Caucasians as a place of Caucasus, excuse me, as a place of human origin. They say that the Bible describes Noah landing his ark at a place called Mount Arat, which was thought by Europeans of Blue Box time to be on the modern Turkish Armenian border. Arat is still the name of the largest mountain in Turkey. So they have concluded, these historians have concluded and established that caste systems did not exist in the pre-Aryan age. It was introduced by racist, color-conscious Aryan invaders who wished to maintain their racial purity from contamination with native Dravidians. We have these Dravidians in the picture, and I will get back to them in another segment. Putting together all these different segments is, is a little bit complicated. I'm not complaining, I'm just commenting. So I'm trying to keep them in some sort of logical order here. 
Um, so the Dravidians, very interesting. The black people enter the picture. Now, there could have been a lot of things that happened with the Dravidians. I mean, clearly, um, there could have been an effort to wipe them out of the area. Now, one thing I'd like to point out is that there was a lot of controversy over were the early Egyptians white or were they black? Well, I don't know where they come up with this logic because if you look at a map, Egypt is in Africa. Africa is primarily a black country. So have they just stolen their history with this move? Eh, I would kind of lean in that direction. So, yeah, so... They say that the mummies and stuff, they've done testing, which, you know, well, they say they did testing on mummies, okay? They say they've done these things. And they claim that the early Egyptians that they show us in those tombs and all over Egypt were really white. Um, and there's a lot of controversy over that. And I don't know, I've watched a lot of these Egyptianologist people and looked at them when they show you these, um, all the different, you know, the fake pyramids and all that stuff. Uh, well, interestingly enough, what I did notice is all those Egyptianologists tend to be white. So why are all these white people telling us about Egypt and making claims that they were really white and not black? Well, I don't know. It's controversial. I'm weighing in on the side possibly with the black people and say that these white people likely played some really huge trick here, okay? So let me just keep going along here and then you can take a look for yourself. So evidently, um, the Dravidians were in India before the Aryans, okay? So these black culture people, the Dravidians, were actually in India before the white people came in. Why doesn't history talk more about them? I don't know. So what happened is, is that um, this term was traditionally been applied to groups from the Indian subcontinent that speak Dravidian languages. So yeah, the word Dravidian comes from the Sanskrit term Dravida, which means Southern. During the 19th century, linguistic scholars began to realize that the Dravidian languages differed significantly from many of those spoken in the North. So early anthropologists and sociologists began to suggest that the darker-skinned inhabitants of the subcontinent were the ones who predominantly spoke the Dravidian languages, and that they, in fact, may have been the original inhabitants of India. Dravidian has been identified as one of the major languages in the group. Um, yeah, so these Dravidians, the term Dalitas means bound. And the name may have been given to them by those who enslaved them and put them in a racist caste system at the lowest levels. And over at the website, I will also have um, diagrams of what these caste systems look like. The Dalits, or Dravidians as they were called, were the indigenous people of India or the Eastern Ethiopians or Eastern Africans. Okay, so pretty much they have decided that the Dravidian peoples or Dravidians are a linguistic group living in Southeast Asia who predominantly spoke any of the Dravidian languages. 
See, this is part of what they did early on, was they chopped us up into different groups. We have all these different cultural groups. We have state lines. We have borders. We have countries. We have states. We have countries. And I believe that part of this effort to get us into all of these different groups was to control and isolate us all because if I didn't speak Dravidian, how would I know anything about these Dravidian people, right? So language, in my opinion, became a great way to try to separate us. So let me continue going through this timeline a little bit here so we can kind of understand it. What enters into this picture early on is this group called Mamluk, M-A-M-L-U-K, okay? And you'll notice these Mamluk people seem to kind of travel through that. Are the Mamluk people them? Possibly. The Manluk Sultanese, also known as Manluk Egypt, or the Manluk Empire, was a state that ruled Egypt, the Lebanon, and the Hejaz in the mid-13th, early 16th centuries. It was ruled by a military caste of Mamluks, at the head of which was the Sultan. So the Sultan was established with the overthrow of this dynasty in Egypt early on, and it was conquered by the Ottoman Empire in 1517. So tune in here with me here on this Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire had a long reign, okay? The Mamluk history is generally divided into the Turek or Babai period, and it was called after the predominant ethnic Sisi group or cores of the ruling Mamluks during their respective eras. So these Mamluk people were in charge, they got booted out, and then the Ottomans, O-T-T-O-M-A-N-S, they reigned from 1517 until really not that many years ago. With the Ottomans' defeat, the Ottomans defeated the Mamluks, okay? Just follow along. It's, it's not, there's only a few players here, okay? Egyptian medieval history has come full circle as Egypt reverted to the status of a province governed by Constantinople. So that is present, that is present day Istanbul, which is Turkey, right? So, Again, the country, Egypt, was exploited as a, this was when the Ottomans defeated the Mamluks, okay? Egypt was exploited as a source of taxation for the benefit of an imperial government and as a base for foreign expansion. So now Egypt, under the Ottomans, has become a base of taxation and exploited, okay? The economic decline in Egypt that had begun under the late Mamluks continued and with it became a decline in Egyptian culture. So all this started to go downhill. Some historians attribute the lethargy of Egypt in this area solely to the rule of this Constantinople. But although Ottoman policy was geared to imperial, not Egyptian needs, it was obviously to the ruler's benefit to provide a stable government that would maintain Egyptian agriculture at a high level of productivity and would promote the transit trade. So they saw some opportunities when they were ruling, when the Ottomans were in charge of Egypt. 
To a certain extent, Ottoman actions served these purposes. The decisive factor that ultimately undermined Ottoman policies was the perpetuation of the former Mamluk elite. So the Ottomans still had the Mamluk elites involved here, okay? And they collaborated with the Ottoman government, but they also defied it and ultimately came to dominate it. So the Mamluks kind of took over the Ottoman government, okay? By and large, the history of Ottoman Egypt, because they called it Ottoman Egypt, Ottoman, excuse me, Egypt during that era, concerns the process by which the conquered Mamluks reasserted their power within the Egyptian state. So that was the Ottomans, okay? And um, I have this one a little bit mixed in here because I didn't know where to put the date. The British Raj, R-A-J, was the rule of the British crown on the Indian subcontinent from 1858 to 1947. The rule is also called crown rule in India or direct rule in India. What happened was, was that the British crown took over India, 1858 to 1947. Another place the British crown took over was the United States. Supposedly, Christopher Columbus allegedly got lost going to this country and thought they were going to India. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of connections here with India. And because the rule of the British crown, they speak English in India, they also speak English in the United States. We hold that together, right? The region of India under British control was commonly called India in a contemporaneous usage and included areas directly administered by the United Kingdom, which were collectively called British India. So, yeah, they had India for quite a long time. Um, and then they did, the British America com- compromised the colonies from 1607 to 1783. I am not totally convinced about all of these dates, but I'm just telling you what is now in, you know, in these datelines here, okay? The United States colonies were formerly known as British America and the British West Indies before the 13 colonies declared their independence in the American Revolution. And then at that point, um, there was a conquest around the same time frame with the Ottoman group, okay? From the conquest itself, the Ottoman presence in Egypt was entangled with Mamluk factionalism, okay? And they also came up with this date of 1516. They said there is no doubt, now they wrote this, I didn't, that the Ottomans invaded Syria. So the Ottomans were very big around that entire area. They pretty much ruled it all. That's why they called it the Ottoman Empire. Timeline of important events in the history of the Ottoman Empire. Um, They created by Turkish tribes. The empire grew to be one of the most powerful states in the world during the 15th and 16th century. The Ottoman period spanned more than 600 years and came to an end in 1922. Okay, The Ottoman Empire is 
Turkey, essentially, right now. You can look up Turkey. Well, what happened after the Ottoman Empire? Well, they rose again. They rose their ugly heads again in Germany under the Weimar Republic. Officially, you know, and this is where I think their path took them, okay? Somehow they had some crazy beginnings in Africa. Was it some biblical thing and everybody got toppled and the black people got booted out? I don't know that part. All I know now are what the dates are, okay, of how this all happened. I presume these same people were traveling along and setting up these disasters along the way, right? But you'll notice that to this day, they seem to maintain a very strong affinity for Egypt, right? So the Weimar Republic, officially known as the German Reich, it describes Germany in the period of 1918 to 1933. And as part of the um, Weimar thing, it was a constitutional federal republic for the first time in history. And that was why it was referred to as the German Republic. And a lot of words that are used come out of Germany. Germany, Germany is a very significant point for all of these people. The country's informal name is derived from the city of Weimar, which hosted the Constitute Assembly that established its government. And I've talked about Weimar in the past. You'll have to go look at those shows in the past. I did more detail about it back then. In English, the country was usually simply called Germany. And the term Weimar Republic was not becoming did not become common until the 1930s. So you will look for all of those names. Weimar, Weimar Republic. So yeah, so basically, um, I don't know why I have all these dates here. This is a little bit crazy. Let me get past here. Okay. Okay, so that's Weimar. And then um, I believe that after they blew through Germany, then that precipitated World War II to get them out of that mess, right? And a lot of the things that connect with Hitler also connect with India, like the swastika. In India, it was a sign of peace. The Nazis turned it into a sign of evil. See where we're going with this double world thing going on here, the dual world thing going on here. So yeah, I believe it would probably be a pretty good trick if they were really black, but yet they're claiming to be white. But maybe the other part of the trick is they beat the people who were black out of their history, took it over and whitewashed it, is highly likely what happened here. And let me give you a few other dates that I have been looking at here uh, because it all plays in with this um, India thing. I've been looking for a long time at India, China, and the United States. Why those three? Well, geographically, they're supposedly, they share a lot of things, okay? You'll have to go look at my show about A1 because um, I started looking at the three of them because I was looking at patterns and they all share different patterns with things like cell phones, smartphones. For example, the highest um, smartphone usage comes out of China, India, the United States. The winner in the smartphone thing is the United States. The people in this country spend more time on those phones than any place else in the world. Which goes to show how people are so confused around here and are able to be lied to full time because they're just too busy staring at those phones. 
So yeah, so there, there's a lot of connections there. And also, if you look at a map, and I'll have a map posted over on the website, the territory, the circle where India and China is, encompasses about 80% of the population right in that specific region there, okay? So that has a lot to do with how they probably transform things. You got a pretty general population right within that area. Um, so also I've been looking at what are things that drove the thing going forward? Well, um, after the, um, after we thought that the slavery, um, issue was dealt with here, it actually continued on. Um, the British established an organized system of temporary labor, mi labor migration from the Indian subcontinent. On the labor supply side of the equation, poverty among the South Asian peasantry accounted for the principal reason to leave the subcontinent. Have you ever noticed any patterns here? Poverty rushes them out to another location, right? How do you get them to move because of poverty? Well, make them poor, wipe out their food supply, maybe have a nice locust attack going on, and then you have people needing to move because of the poverty, they can't stay in the area. So in 1834, the Britons became, they started exporting Indian labor to other countries, to the Netherlands and France, and they also replicated the British system, which relied on Indian workers. By 1878, Indians were working in Guyana, Trinidad, South Africa, Fiji. They were working all over the place. So basically, it became a human supply issue, right? So did they conquer these places to get that labor? Did they conquer these places to hide some ugly history? Lots of options here, options here, right? And some other dates I've been looking at with this group of people. We had the first opium wars in 1840 to 1842. Great Britain flooded the country with opium. That would be China, causing an addiction crisis. They really are one-trick ponies. I mean, they've made this country nothing but a, a nation of addicts with the opioids, the fentanyl, and all that stuff. So basically, because of the opio uh, opioids, the uh, opium crisis, the Qing dynasty banned the drug and a military confrontation resulted. British forces shut down Chinese ports and Hong Kong was handed over to them at that point. That would be in 1842. So this went along for a long time, but in response to severe criticism, the British Imperial Legislative Council abolished the indenture system by 1916. By that time, more than 1.5 million Indians, or so they say, had been shipped to colonies in the Caribbean, Africa, Asian, and Oceania. So these were according to some statistics. Well, we know from the shows that I did, you know, about how the so-called um, natives from Africa were shipped to this country. They ended up in a million different locations, right? They ended up in Cuba. They ended up being shipped all over the place. So... Um, they basically, let me see, they got it, this whole thing went all through Sri Lanka, Malaysia, India. Yeah, basically we had kind of a, not kind of it, but an actual slave system going on there. Um, in Malaya, 
Migration took place in addition to the indentured labor system and mostly replaced it from the 1900s onwards. Well, I don't really believe any of this stuff got um, got abolished. <laughs> I mean, it basically changed faces, right? India from 1930 onward, India restricted the issuance of passports in order to limit the migration of less educated Indians to Britain. So here we start to clamp down the populations, okay? We've got the 1930s, they're being restricted on passports to even get out of India. Imagine the manipulation you can do to a society when you cloister them into one spot, right? Unlike Indians of good character and established positions, the less educated were required to have a definite employment offer in Britain and to prove they would be unlikely to become destitute. And then there's one other date I was looking at in this mess with these people that's important that um, closed off China. We had the Great Leap Forward. This campaign by Chairman Mao to transform the agriculture base of China's society into an industrial one imposed a com commune system that organized peasants and forbade private farming. The plan failed to produce the necessary yield, and famine followed, leading 56 million deaths, including 3 million by suicide. Can I verify any of these numbers? No, of course not. They're probably worse than they're telling us. Then, of course, in 1966, we had the Cultural Revolution. This campaign was initiated by Chairman Mao to erase capitalism and traditional Chinese influences of the People's Republic and introduce the philosophy of Maoism to fill the ideological gaps. Schools were closed and Chinese youth directed to take the lead in change, resulting in youth gangs known as the Red Guards attacking undesirable citizens. Chaos led to martial law. So, you know, this is, these are other forms, as I see it, uh, the caste system. And when I come back in the next segment, I will give you the layers of the caste system that they have going on. And we can model that into basically society today. Now that we have some idea of some of this timeline things going on here, let's take a look at some examples of caste systems. A caste system is a form of social stratification developed to separate groups of people and justify different treatment and living standards. There are many caste system examples on the world stage, but the most Prominent ones include India, Nazi Germany, and the United States of America. No one is likely to mistake the United States for India or see any parallelisms between Americans and Nazis anytime soon, but similarities exist between the United States and both of those societies. 
in that all three had government-sanctioned caste systems. And I would argue that, I don't know about Germany, but I would say that the United States still has a caste system going on today. There is a strong historical connection between India and the United States. Both countries were invaded and conquered by British colonists. The invaders exiled indigenous people of each country from their homeland and created hierarchies to distribute power to those asserting themselves as the dominant caste. In both countries, that dominant caste persecuted the lowest caste. Both countries developed laws to maintain this social order and tortured the lower caste members Yet in both cases, the legacy of those social orders persists into the modern era. Despite efforts in both countries to make amends to the subordinate caste by providing opportunities for growth, such an affirmation act, action excuse me, in America or reservations in India, the dominant caste resent these new systems. Americans call it reverse racism, and Indians call it reverse casteism. So yes, the dominant caste resent the new systems. Have you heard them talking about how these workers won't come back to work? <laughs> it, it comes out of their mouths with about every breath they breathe that we are lower than them. And the sad part is many people believe that they want to be just like them. Getting us to be like them has been the entire goal. But newsflash, we're never going to be them. That is the big trick, right? That's the rug they pull at the last minute. Come get this education. Come do this. If you'd only do that, that is the trick, right? Nothing ever changes. The difference in the structures of the caste. Contrary to the bipolar caste system in the United States, India's caste system was an intricate system of many castes and subcastes. The five main castes include the Brahmin, Kari, I can't pronounce this, Kashiya, Vaishya, Shudra, and the Dalits. The Dalits were most commonly referred to as the untouchables, and that would be um, these other groups that they that they put into the caste system. Members of the different castes were mostly easily identified by their surnames. At the onset of the caste, this caste system, the untouchables were given names with low connotations, such as those representing debased forms of labor. The Brahmins were given names taken from the gods. Caste members could also be identified by attire, accents, and demeanor. So, they, um, most people in India felt the caste system was beyond reproach because they believed the castes were preordained by reincarnation. Your lot in life was determined by the karma you accumulated in your past life. This is where that Eastern religion stuff comes in, right? Always trying to get us to do things willingly. If you're going to impress somebody, get them to go along with you. It makes it a lot easier, right? 
But the untouchables, like the American slaves, didn't feel the same about their position. They also wanted to live free of the confines of lawful oppression. For example, many Dalits resisted their status and felt a kinship with blacks in America. In fact, a group of Dalits formed the American Civil Rights Movement, oh, excuse me, followed the American Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 60s and became influenced by the fight for equal rights. They formed the Dalit Panthers to mimic the Black Panther Party. So yeah, the untouchables are at the very bottom. How it lays out is the Brahmins at the top of the caste, okay? Those are typically priests, academics, and the academic class, okay? The Kashayas are the administrators, rulers, and I can't quite read this. Let me see here. And that is, I can't see what that says. Okay, the Vashiyas, that's the third one down. Artisans, farmers, merchants, tradesmen. Fourth one in line down there, Shudras. They're the manual laborers. And the Dalits are the untouchables. They would be the street cleaners, the ones dealing with the manual, menial, very menial tasks. So yeah, you can see how this is a system. In this country, probably instead of the Brahmins at the top, we would have, that has the priests, the academics. I would say the Brahmins would probably be the ruling class, like the Jeff Bezos of the world, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs. I would say that probably, probably, I'm just guessing here, right? In order to be in the top caste in the United States, I am going to say that I 100% believe that in order to be in the top caste in this country, you would have to be transgender. That's how you get into that caste, okay? Probably the next caste of people, the police and stuff, also leaders of industry to get into that caste, also transgender, okay? And then the underlings follow under these positions. So I believe to get into the top two caste positions in this country, transgenderism, and that would be likely as in vitro, as babies. So they were born in the wrong sex, which is going to cause kind of a mess coming down the road here because we've got a bunch of people that aren't even in the sex they say they are. In order to be that way, they're all taking a massive amounts of hormones and nobody seems to have their head screwed on straight. So got a lot coming on with this caste system because the rulers of the caste seem to be just a tiny bit out of control and they're all on drugs. So that's how the caste system works. And the goal is to always make us feel like we can excel to the next caste level, right? That's how they got like India and China to invest all of their hard-earned money into educating their children because the parents did not want to see their children raised in the same environment that they were raised in. So what was the what was the outcome of that? Well, the families went out and same thing in this country. Student loan debt is drowning people, okay? Everybody got the idea that if they paid more money and got more education, they would jump up the caste system, right? Well, nobody jumps up anywhere because the caste system is, in fact, in full display and in full working in this country as I speak. And we are ruled by caste people 
who aren't even the sex they say they are. So that's how they would fit in the upper two levels. And that is just my opinion. Okay, let's take a look at the caste system in India. Most of us, when we think about the caste system, we probably do think about India and no other places. So anyway, so the caste system was instituted by the ruling Aryan class that invaded India. So here are some comments that I found from people about who these people are that invaded India. And I believe it is the Dravidians, D-R-A-V-I-D-I-A-N-S. They supposedly entered India before the Aryans, and they're saying before 2000 BC, but you know, what difference does that make, right? So supposedly they passed through Mesopotamia, Aran, Balchusista, and the Brahmas. And there's this Davidian race that live there. On grounds of cultural affinity, such as inheritance through women, snake cults, organization of society, and structure of temples, some historians connect the Dravidians with these groups called the Alamanites and the Mesopotamians. So they say they had some Indian skulls, but I don't really know about that. But what they're saying that a particular significance, there was this one architect, archaeologist, excuse me, who contended that the Dravidians probably came from Nubia, Upper Egypt. This thing, this theory would give them, among other things, their Mediterranean features and dark complexion. So, yeah, the um, difference that I can see between the Dravidians and the actual black people in Africa is the Dravidians have very dark skin, same nose, but they have straight black hair. And I will have pictures of them over at the website, Psychopath in Your Life. Look under show notes for this one, okay? And you'll see pictures of what these Dravidia people look like. There's a lot of things that connect these Dravidias to the people in India. And there's a lot of things with the, the language that connects them. And there's a lot of things about the words. So in the beginning, um, they had all of these different things going on in India as far as the different religions. And they said the ancient Persians also referred to India as Haptahind. So this is why some scholars came to believe that the word Hindu had its origin in Persia. So there's a lot to these people in India, and I will leave pictures for you to take a look at for yourself because there is a big difference in the appearance of people in North India 
and people in South India. The people in South India are where the Dravidian tribe came in. The dark-skinned African-American looking people came in. And I will also have charts to show you of the different faces. I've got things that I'll go into in future shows, but this is the facial features that pretty much got spread out between China, India, and around the world. Because people of Southern India are much darker than people of Northern India. People of North India have narrower features, narrower noses, and are more Caucasoid than people of South India. And also, while you're taking a look at their pictures, think about this. What is the opposite of a flat African-style nose? Well, I would say a big Jew nose would be the opposite. So we're in a dual world. So the people that likely originated all this stuff did in fact come from Africa. So they gave them that big Jew nose for themselves. So um, what's interesting about the Dravidians, it brings us around the time frame that I've been looking at. Dravidian languages were first recognized as an independent family in 1816 by this British guy. So, and they, they introduced the Sanskrit word Dravida into the language at that point. There's a lot of this language stuff that I'm not going to go into, but I would hope that some of these shows would propel you to look further and uncover more for yourself. So, they say that the original caste system of India can be traced back thousands of years and there's maybe some truth to it, right? I will cut to the chase here because, you know, there's just pages and pages that go on about this caste system and how they say it all got set up. Here is my view about the caste system they set up in India. I believe it became the model that they used for the rest of us. And also, I think, okay, think how they introduced the idea of karma and all the Eastern religions into India. I hung around some Zen groups for a few years, years ago, and they have this thing about karma, you know, that you're, you're here on this wheel. And it's basically, to me, it seems like a negative thing, right? Because they say that you're here because your karma was bad and you're working it all off in this lifetime, right? I believed they were able to push the idea of the caste system so drastically in India was because of their belief in this idea about karma. So the first entrance into the caste system were likely, you know, the lower level ones, People who became convinced that they were indeed lower level caste members because of some karma conditions from their past lives. And likely that is how they possibly sold the idea of the caste system to the people within India to get them to agree to the level they're on, right? See, we all get to agree to these things, right? Um, so anyway, so yeah, um, Adopting caste is a transnational historical category which generates important insights. So uh, when we conceptualize and resist racial subjugation, first and foremost, because it is a caste system, 
we risk losing vital context-born insights that might aid and energize our political endeavors. So I believe that we were set up completely on the caste system. And like everything else, it gave the appearance of something else because they probably couldn't present to us being cast members when they cooked up this place here, right? So they had to come up with some alternative process from what they learned about putting people into caste systems in India. So that's what I understand about it. I hope you certainly hope you will look further into it because it's a very, very interesting theory. I believe it is true. I think that's how they got us all into these groups. And I will be talking more about what the caste system in general looks like. this rather interesting theory about the Nazis and the caste system. How the story goes, according to this one group of experts, is that in the late spring of 1934, a committee of Nazi bureaucrats met to draft the Nuremberg Laws, a legal framework for the Aryan nation they hoped to create. In order to do so, the Nazis turned to the caste system in the United States. They were determined to glean what they could from its strictness in guarding its ruling white citizenry and its longevity. The Nazis wanted to quickly, efficiently institute plans for racial separation and purity, and they turned to the United States for a blueprint. The Nazis coined the term Unkermensch, or subhuman, to refer to those they would place in the subordinate caste, and that would be its Jewish citizens, along with several other minority groups. So what they said in this book that the Nazis used the U.S. caste system as an inspiration for their own, and the book illustrated the undeniability and severity of the U.S. casteism. Almost caste, castrate? Huh. Anyways, moving along here. <laughs> the passage also suggests that caste is a global problem because the brutality of one caste system may inspire another that is equally or even more brutal. Interesting about the Germans, right? Hitler had long studied the U.S. from afar, and he believed it, it was a successful nation because of its Aryan stock. He admired how the U.S. had disseminated its indigenous population, indigenous, excuse me, population, that would be the Indians, and the country subjugated its subordinate caste through lynchings. All the history of the black suppression, right? Hitler knew that Americans were perpetuating mass death, yet he idolized their robust innocence in the face of heinous crimes. 
So yeah, the U.S. and their long history with eugenics and the caste system, okay? So Hitler rose to power as an outside agitator, and by the time he and his party secured control of the country, there was little anyone belonging to the old guard could do. The Nazis set to scapegoating Jewish people who were seen as dominant in banking and finance in the first two decades of the 20th century. So the loss of the world, they convinced the ordinary Germans that Jewish people didn't deserve the wealth they'd come to possess. The Nazis began a campaign of mockery and intimidation against the caste they decided would be subordinate. Everybody has their own caste and their own system. After turning to U.S. race laws for guidance as how to separate German Jews from other German citizens, many Nazi officials believed that the U.S. segregation laws were too extreme. So our laws were too extreme for the Nazi party, according to them and their experts, right? So um, Hitler and those who held roles in the Nazi party and SS force are widely reviled as immoral and murderous historical figures. And yet in this passage, the book asserts that their actions were influenced by laws and procedures that already existed in the United States and that some of the U.S. policies on race and caste were too extreme even for the Nazis. By recontextualizing the severity of the U.S.'s caste system, the book illustrated how caste can be hidden in plain sight in one place, even as its existence inspires atrocities in others. All about the hiding in plain sight, right? And that, in a nutshell, is how the uh, Nazis looked at the United States for guidance. They truly, truly are one-trick ponies. Okay, let's talk about locusts, okay? I did not know, well, I knew about grasshoppers, obviously, but, you know, I read about these swarms of locusts and had not really made the connection myself. So let me share with you what I found out about locusts, okay? Um, because these are, in my view, a form of eugenics. So let me explain why I think that way, okay? And what is a locust? Well, Actually, we, they start with being a shorthorn grasshopper, and they're in this specific family, and they have a swarming phase to them, okay? And that's what makes it interesting, because these insects are usually solitary, and under certain circumstances, they become more abundant and change their behavior and habits and become gregarious. So, yeah, so what happens is, is that when they, these solitary grasshoppers, when they, there's more of them than usual, and they're in a larger group, they start swarming. They change their behavior and start swarming and forming, like, 
uh, really grasshopper gangs, right? <laughs> I mean, gangs of grasshoppers. Gangs of grasshoppers means locusts is what we're looking at here, right? So anyway, so because I've been looking into bug stuff, and there was, uh, let me tell you a little story about this, uh, what happened in the Rocky Mountains in the 1800s here. They said the density of Rocky Mountain locust swarms that periodically hit U.S. crop fields during the 1800s is difficult to grasp today. Western settler accounts testify to locust clouds actually blocking out the sun. A woman wrote, the cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping whir whirling of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground and the house with the noise of a hailstorm. Within the span of hours, locust swarms could blow in and devour everything a farmer had. Total consumption, crops, fabric, or clothing. Farmers tried in vain to fight the swarms with fires and metal scoops covered with tar or molasses and were met with destruction on a catastrophic scale, according to Wild West Magazine. The locusts soon scoured the field of crops, the, let me see, the field of leaves, every blade of grass, the wool off the sheep, the harnesses off horses, the paint off wagons, and the handles off pitchforks. The locusts ate everything but the mortgage. The 1870, excuse me, in 1875, the largest, okay, okay, let me get back here. In 1875, the largest locust swarm in history was recorded over the Midwest, 198,000 square miles. So, for a size reference, California covers 163,000 square miles. So, that is a lot of locusts, right? The 1875 swarm was estimated to contain several trillion locusts and probably weighed several million tons. That was the largest locust cloud in the world history, according to this author who talked about this. He had this book about... Um, the devastating rise and mysterious disappearance of the insect that shaped the American frontier was his book because this particular group of grasshoppers that were a part of this attack in, you know, through the Midwest area in the 1800s went extinct. Funny how that worked, right? Couldn't be that possibly that grasshopper had been engineered to do this task and then died out. I mean, excuse my suspicious mind here. Um, so yeah, so uh, it was supposedly the largest locust cloud in world history. Yeah. And it went extinct. The last recorded sighting of this thing was in 1902. So the it went from 19, excuse me, 1875 to 1902. And this particular group of grasshoppers that went instinct became, you know, gone 
but it had a very devastating impact. Well, I don't know. I kind of smell biological engineering, but you know, the idea here is for everybody to think for themselves, right? So yeah, um, what happens is um, they put more and more of them under the plow and you know, all the locust eggs and they have been doing all these studies. So yeah, grasshoppers. See, I had been confused when I knew what grasshoppers were, obviously, but I hadn't really connected that these people came up with this idea that more than one grasshopper is a locust swarm. Okay, that's all it is. Nothing more complicated than that. But what's interesting was that locusts also attached to a few biblical things, which are uh, highly touted that I ran across. Um, in particular, Exodus 10, 15, um, it says, For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees, which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees, or on the plants, or the fields, throughout all the land of Egypt. So, yeah, locusts really play into the Bible thing. I don't know why they just don't say, well, the grasshoppers covered the earth. <laughs> but anyways, that's how it works. So, yeah, now you might wonder, well, gee, that's kind of an interesting thing about grasshoppers. But why am I talking about locusts and grasshoppers today? Well, because for a long time, I have been suspecting and thinking that they have been using bugs as a eugenics type weapon for a long time. I used to think that they may have first started with bugs during the Korean War. But now I understand more about, now that I understand more about grasshoppers and locusts, I think that it likely, what I thought they started with in Korea, likely started in Kansas is what I'm saying. So what I'm also saying here is that it appears to me in the 1800s, they were already rolling out the eugenics plan using locusts, okay, or grasshoppers, however you want to call them. So yeah, so because I'd been thinking about because the Korean War and uh, because my father was a navigator in the military during the Korean War. So for a long time, I wondered if because he was obviously flying planes, being a navigator in the Korean War. And that was actually when I was born, was when he was flying during the Korean War. So I had wondered originally, um, and I still wonder about this part, um, were they in fact dropping bugs during the Korean War? And of course, my next question was, would my father have known? Well, likely because he was a navigator, right? Penpointing things on a map. Um, so yeah, so that was another question that I've had lingering around my brain for a long time. So anyway, so this bug thing has been on my mind for a long time, wondering first if my dad knew, right? Because he was from Kansas and Kansas had a couple of things happening. Kansas had this, um, big deal with the, um, you know, locusts, <laughs> you know, when, so his family had experience with Kansas. So that, you know, that was in my you know, radar as far as the Kansas and why did Kansas and that whole area get wiped out by locusts in the 1800s? Well, I don't know. Ask yourself this. Was it just a relocation plan um, to get people that had settled there to move on from there, you know, relocate them somewhere else? 
encourage them to move on by, you know, wiping out everything they had? Or was it early eugenics testing using bugs? Well, you have to question it all, right? So anyhow, so let me get to the stuff that I was thinking about with Korea. Because there are allegations that have been made that the U.S. used biological weapons in the Korean War. And those biological weapons were in the form of bugs. So yeah, um, there are allegations that the United States military used biological weapons in the Korean War from June 1950 to July 1953. They were raised by by the government's uh, concerns about this biological weapons Supposedly, these other governments raised concerns about the U.S. using these biological weapons. Those countries were the People's Republic of China, the Soviet Union, and North Korea. The claims were first raised in 1951. So that was exactly 71 years ago, because that was the year I was born. 1951, there were allegations of biological weapons. Well, I would argue that they've been using them since the 1800s. But anyway, so I ran, I even ran across this article recently about, you know, they do this signaling thing. So I run across these little weird little things here and there. And um, just recently, I don't know, some European firm um, released a whole bunch of genetically um, engineered mosquitoes into Florida. And by just recently, I mean about a month ago, okay? (laughs) So, yeah, and think of all the diseases that supposedly come from mosquitoes, right? So, yeah, so... Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why bugs have been on my mind, okay? Um, And just recently finding out about grasshoppers and and my brain making the locust connection, what I find is very interesting. So anyhow, so it was the um, year was 1874 in Kansas, okay? And here is the report that was quoted in this book. Uh, The book was on the banks of Plum Creek. It said... You could hear the millions of jaws biting and chewing. Grasshoppers went into the house with them. Their clothes were full of grasshoppers. Some jumped into the stove where Mary was cooking supper. Ma covered the food till they had chased and smashed every grasshopper. She swept them up and shoveled them into the stove. So that was a book. And what I found really, really interesting was this. This other quote from this thing, it said, They beat against the house, swarm in out the windows, cover the passing trains. They work as if sent to destroy. They work as if sent to destroy. That was the quote that caught my attention. Anyway, so yeah, so supposedly, and I believe this to be true, that 1875 still is the largest recorded swarm of locusts in American history and descended upon the Great Plains. So, you know, 1,800, 18,000 miles, yeah, from Canada down to Texas. So, yeah, um, so, yeah, Kansas, Texas, but it mainly hit that area around Texas. So, um it's going on the last major one um happened is there's these desert locusts okay and 
I'd like to point this one out. And here again, anything that I have from this file, I will of course put on the website for you to take a look at. I hope that this will encourage you to, you know, think more about this bug deal. I mean, we got the mosquitoes and I don't know, there's so many mosquito diseases going on and stuff and, you know, things going on with these um, locusts wiping out crops and, um, see, this is not really, um, well, it would be pretty simple to enact, okay, because all they're doing is dropping eggs, right? And the eggs multiply by the millions and stuff you know, like per, per every second when the, when you look at these insects. And, you know, I can't be an insect uh, expert, but I do know enough to know that um, a swarm of 80 million grasshoppers or locusts can consume food equivalent to that eaten by 35,000 people a day. So in 2020, the locusts swarmed in large numbers in dozens of countries including Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, Somalia, I India, Pakistan, Iran, Yemen, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. So um, when swarms affect several countries at once in very large numbers, it is known as a plague. So just as an information piece, there's something for you to perk your ears up and take a look at because obviously this technology of planting eggs and tiny bugs around, it doesn't seem to me like it would be complicated, okay? The complication probably comes because there's like supposedly 1,600 species. I mean, were there some species to start with before they got a hold of them? Yeah, probably. Um, so, you know, I don't know enough about grasshoppers to be definitive here, but all I point out is tiny bugs and eggs, easy to plant around because all of a sudden, boom, the eggs, you know, would obviously, you know, hatch very quickly and stuff. So, yeah, so another form of eugenics and... I, you know, wanted to bring this to you because it's been on my mind for a long time and go look for more information for yourself because it certainly is a way that they have enacted before a pretty serious form of eugenics. Okay, so I'll leave it at that. So take your time to take your look for yourself as far as how this all connects because I could sit here probably for the next 100 years talking about, you know, just off the top of my mind, the you know, diseases that, you know, seem to emanate from things like mosquitoes and bugs and stuff. So it's just something I wanted to point out to you. It's time to say goodbye for now. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, I would like to close out with a few things here. Um, I learned a lot, a whole lot. That's why I like doing this work is because I like to learn about how this all happened. I don't think we just stumbled here and we're just motoring along. This has all been predestined and all of that. You know, What's going to happen next? I don't really know. I think anybody that tells you that they knew exactly what happened in Egypt is, you know, making some assumptions they really don't know about because I wasn't there. You weren't there. 
I think we can take what facts we have. And from my viewpoint, I think that something got going on in that area very drastically. Um, there's a lot of talking about this in the Bible. What are my feelings on that? Well, I don't know. Not a whole lot, except that there's one possibility to look at is that maybe the Bible was written in one way and they rewrote it in another way. Could be possible that the Bible is their first act at um, controlled opposition. Maybe the Bible said the good things and they wrote in all those horrible things because, and I don't know enough about the Bible to make a definitive statement, but they do have a lot of uh, nasty kind of warlike things in there that are represented. So where'd all those things come from? Well, maybe they wrote it in, right? Maybe they wrote in the bad and, you know, it's a dual world. So always remember that. So did something go on there? Yeah. I mean, I put some links over at the website, you know, there's certain people in the black community who feel like their history was stolen. I'm not saying that I co-sign with what anybody says. I'm just saying we need to take a look at it all, okay? People feel that their history was stolen during that juncture of time, People meaning people from Africa. I tend to probably lean on their side. I think this could have been the biggest trick of all, to cook up this slave thing, to divide all of us, okay? Get us into these separate classes. Everything has been about dividing us up. Remember, you must divide in order to conquer, right? And you can't have everybody running wild. You got to have them calmly being conquered. In other words, being led onto those boats, not being dragged onto those boats, right? You see how it works. But there's just something about Africa. They have all this concern for Africa. You know, they hold all those big concert fundraisers in Africa. What's all that about? Well, probably to steal money. Because these people are so greedy that they would put on concerts in Africa to appeal to those people with high levels of empathy who would likely pay them a lot of money. And what happens is we have somehow gotten to believe that paying money to go to a concert does something for the people that we think it does. And for a fact, it does not help the people. But why Africa? I don't know. They have all those fundraisers. Is it just because it's easier to raise money off the backs of very poor, suppressed people? That could be another thing. So, you know, I think they probably stole their history, um, but I don't really know that right now. Hopefully, you know, if I have more thoughts about it, of course, I'll come back with them. I hope if you have some thoughts about it, you'll leave a comment over at the website. Don't put your name or your email address. Just say what you think. Um, I did a show recently, I don't know, in the last several months about Africa and the U.S. military bases there. The entire world right now has U.S. military bases all over Africa. What's that all about? Well, I think after um, World War II, not think, I know the United States set up a huge base along with NATO in Germany. I know for a fact they said because they needed to expand the base in Germany into Africa. I suspect, suspect and think the reason for the, ba the base was set up in Germany after World War II was to carry on the eugenics program, right? 
because everybody thought, oh, World War II is over. That will never happen again. Well, they just quietly probably set up that big base. Then supposedly they started setting up bases in Africa in the last few years with the premise that it was an offshoot from the base in Germany. What does that mean? I don't really know. I thought for a while they were in there to raid their resources because they've been raiding this country and around the world all the natural resources. Africa's loaded with natural resources. So are they getting in line to raid their natural resources? Maybe. I know China's in there. They're all in there and they're buying up parts of their country to, you know, <laughs> steal stuff. So what exactly is going on in Africa? I'm not really sure yet. Why all the U.S. military bases? So anyway, so that show was done in a live chat and Archie's cleaned it up and taken out the dead spot. So I hope you'll go and take a listen to that show about the military involvement right now going on in Africa. You know, is is the end of the world going to come in Africa or is it going to come in the United States? Don't really know. See, these things always bring up a lot more questions, but that's good because you know what? We should be questioning it all. So anyway, so be safe out there. Goodbye for now. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another mountain There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb There are oceans and rivers enough to cross Enough to last till the end of time What the world needs now is love, sweet love it's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another meadow. There are cornfields and wheat fields. Enough to grow. There are sunbeams and moonbeams. Enough to shine. Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know.